This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The year was 1988, and Jack Barsky had been in the United States for over 10 years. Like anyone living in the hustle and bustle of New York City, the sight of the skyline, peppered with so many tall buildings, never got old. He had made this city a home, a home he knew better than most native New Yorkers, having explored nearly every street by foot or by bicycle. He loved his job as a software developer at MetLife. He adored his coworkers, and he finally felt like he was fitting in. He was meant to be here. He lived in a modest apartment with his wife and young daughter, and they considered looking for a bigger place now that there were three in the family. Even though his days were long and his commute to and from Manhattan made it even longer, he rushed back home every night to see his little princess one last time before she went to bed. Jack Barsky was living the American dream. But this dream was about to take a sudden and unexpected turn. ...has taken refuge there. The news watch never stops. It's 42 degrees in clear in New York, going down to 29 degrees in Midtown. I would probably wake up typically about... Uh seven, uh, have a bowl of cereal and get on my way. I lived in Queens. I had about a 12-minute walk to the subway. This was in December. It was still dark at that time. I'm not a morning person, so I'm just like walking, sort of in a daze. I went along a path that I had communicated to the center. They needed to know this because there was a spot on that path where they were able to put signals. So every morning when I get to a supporting post for the elevated A train, I would just take a look and nothing ever was there. But on this cold December morning, Jack noticed something different as he approached the subway station. This is really odd. I get a little closer and there was this red dot, the fist-sized red dot. That screamed at me. What it was saying is danger. Get out of here. Immediately. Don't go back home. Don't go to work. Retrieve your reserve documents. I had a a set of uh, Canadian documents that I had uh, hidden in, in a park someplace and make a beeline to the Canadian border where eventually uh, you get further instructions and that's how we get you out of here. That's all I knew danger, do this. This was part of the plan. Jack had received a signal, a code red. The red dot was a signal from the center, the home of KGB headquarters back in Moscow, and was part of an elaborate system of graphic signals used for communication. In the 10 years he had spent in America, Jack had regular secret communication with other Russian agents, agents he never actually met in person. But until today, Jack had never received the danger signal. This signal meant that one way or another, Jack's life would once again change drastically. I just walked right past it. I made a very quick decision. I'm going to work. Because I had thought about the end game for a long time. My daughter Chelsea was 18 months old at the time. 
That was the first time that I really, really was in love with another person that you can call unconditional love. I was there when she was born. I raised her up until 18 months, and she was the prettiest thing. She didn't talk yet. She was talking with her big eyes. She has huge eyes. I knew one day I would have to leave her. That's what I knew. What I was trying to figure out, how can I support this child so that she can grow up and, and have a decent life? And I hadn't come up with a solution yet. I wasn't ready to run. I wasn't ready. Jack knew that a code red meant that he was supposed to act quickly. That meant that he would have to walk away from everything in his life. His job, all his possessions, and his daughter and immediately leave the country. I just got on the train and went to work and stared at the computer screen for, for the entire day, didn't do any work. What do you do? Obviously, the, the danger is escalated because now I got two problems here. The girl that I can't leave, I don't want to leave until I have found an idea how to support her remotely. And then, you know, the FBI might be on my case. Back at his apartment, Jack received a coded radio transmission from overseas. Moscow had a message for their man. This was on a Monday. Thursday, I, I get the explanation for the dot. Prepare for urgent departure. We have reason to believe that your cover has been blown. You are in severe danger. Listen on this frequency every day to receive further instructions. Confirm receipt of this message with signal at regular signal location. This is an order. I don't know if I slept very well that night because, you know, this was now the second order because the red dot was an order too. I listened to the next day and they just repeated the same message. So I'm now putting myself into their shoes because there was a precedent once that I, for several weeks, couldn't listen to the radio because of my accident. They didn't know whether I actually received the message. I didn't confirm it, therefore, the radio could have been broken, I could be in a hospital, whatever, I could be sick. I had some time, I could play for time. For the next three weeks, radio transmissions continued with the same message. Prepare for urgent departure. You're in severe danger. I went on a route to check whether I was being followed. Nothing. I had a number of spots in my apartment that would indicate if they if something was moved and not put in exactly the right place that somebody was actually checking, uh, searching through the apartment. But nothing indicated that people had searched through the place. I mailed myself a letter, and when you closed the letter, it wasn't completely glued, there were some gaps. And I was told when letters are being opened, they're being opened with steam and then they're be re being resealed. If there were no gaps after I get the letter, I know that somebody had read it, and I, there was no hint at all that somebody was watching me. For those three weeks, the impossible choice of what he should do next weighed heavily on Jack. For me to go back to Germany, I was in extremely good standing with them. I, the year before, I had received the Order of the Red Banner, second highest decoration of the Soviet Union. The last time I was in Moscow, they had promised me a house, and I had dollar savings there. And I had a, a wife who I loved in Germany, and a son. Come back home a hero, and the only thing that was on the other side of the scale was Chelsea, who had nothing to give me but her smile. 
There was a counterweight that kept this scale in balance for a while. So that's why I was still dragging out to see if I can resolve this. This could not have been resolved with logic. You tried logic, it didn't work. This eventually came down to a final emotional decision. Back in Moscow, the KGB grew more and more concerned after not hearing from Jack. Was he already in the hands of the FBI? Now they have a bunch of question marks over their head and says, what's, what's with this guy? What's with this guy? We need to know. And so they decided on taking a more drastic step. That would be really indicative of an emergency. They needed to know, am I still around? They needed to know, am I capable? Am I just, am I an active, normal person? What's going on here? And God forbid, maybe there's a problem with the radio transmission. Maybe there was something that happened around uh, his building that precludes him from getting the signal. Jack carried on, continuing his daily commute. Now much more watchful than he had been in years, Jack Barsky again stepped on the subway platform. I was going the same way every day, every morning. Uh, to the A train in the dark and wait for the train and go to Manhattan. It's maybe 7.30 in the morning and I'm uh, waiting for the train on the platform. The air was cold and a layer of fog hung over the city. Lined up next to the regular huddle of commuters, Jack stuck out more than most with his wiry six-foot, three-inch frame and blondish-brown hair. And there were maybe a dozen or so other folks It was still early. And I'm at the front end where the train would come in. And as I'm waiting and looking to my left where the train was coming from, I see from the corner of my right eye a short guy in a black trench coat slowly walking towards me. And he come closer and closer. And then he got really close. Then he whispered into my ears, you got to come home or else you're dead. And that was with a Russian accent. And then he just turned around and walked away. That was probably one of, one of the most uncomfortable moments in my, my entire life. The train came, I got on the train, I go to work. This is another day when I was completely not productive because now I knew it was time to act. There was no more playing for time. We both knew that the contact was made. This is the true story of a man who has lived a life like no other. A man that held Soviet state secrets and assumed many identities. A man who traveled undercover to destinations spanning the globe. Berlin, Moscow, Vienna, Rome, Mexico City, Toronto, and New York City. This man was an agent for the KGB hiding in plain sight amongst millions of New Yorkers. His name is Jack Barsky. But that is not his real name. Jack Barsky was born Albrecht Dietrich in post-World War II Eastern Germany, and now the KGB had summoned him back to Moscow with a not-so-subtle threat if he were to disobey their order. He was confronted with the choice of a lifetime. Follow orders and return to Moscow, or stay in America, all for the one person who mattered more to him than anyone his daughter, Chelsea. All she had to give me was a smile. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is The Agent. I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. 
it was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Chapter 1, Code Red. Говорит Москва от Центрального комитета Коммунистической партии Советского Союза, Совета Министров Союза СССР и Президиума Верховного Совета СССР. March 9, 1953. Today was Joseph Stalin's funeral and he was getting a final and dramatic salute. His embalmed body paraded through Moscow's Red Square as millions of mourners looked on in the bitter cold. Decades before he was to become Jack Barsky, a young Albrecht Dietrich listened to the procession on the radio in his family's small apartment in eastern Germany. Chopin's funeral march played over the airwaves as Albrecht, along with his mother, father, and brother, listened intently. I asked my father, Dad, who is that Stalin? Why are we all sad? And he tried to explain to me that he was the greatest leader ever. He was our hero, and, and it was difficult to imagine how we can go on without him. That stuck with me for many years. It was my first vivid recollection of anything, and it had to do with the atmosphere, with the music. Though Hitler and Stalin were now both dead and the Great War had been over for some time, 
The devastation was so much more than a memory. It was a reality to those living in the countryside of eastern Germany. Poverty was widespread, and there was simply not enough for everyone. Where I grew up, it was uh, the easternmost part of Germany. It was overrun by the Russians, but they were marching toward Berlin. So there were a few skirmishes here and there. And that second house that I grew up in had a whole bunch of holes in the walls from people shooting. And there was a Russian slogan there, and it said, Pierret na Berlin. Forward to Berlin. There was nothing to destroy, there was nothing to take away because there was the one of the poorest sections of Germany, mostly agriculture and forest, and uh, the soil was pretty poor, so the peasants were not, not that rich. It, there was really nothing there. We probably were better off than the more civilized places, such as Berlin, Dresden, Munich, and so forth. Munich was better off because it was liberated by the Americans, obviously, so it's the easternmost cities, Leipzig, Dresden, and Berlin, that really got hammered. I still remember seeing women, primarily women, going into the ruins of bombed-out buildings and taking bricks, brick by brick, taking the mortar off and stacking them. They were called Trümmerfrauen. The women that dealt with the leftovers, they prepared the bricks for reuse and they got paid in food. And it was mostly women because the men a lot of them had died, and a lot of them were prisoners of war by the Americans, the British, and the Russians. It was really the women who put Germany sort of back on its feet. There was nothing there. There was no creature comfort, particularly in the city. There was no food. The average uh, caloric intake of a citizen, uh, it was below maintenance. And people really look quite emaciating. But if you, you lived in the country, at least you had a few peasants nearby and you could trade or do some work for them and you get potatoes, you get by. I have a picture of myself and I was already 12 years old. And I stand there and there's a rail, like really scary. And I showed this to a friend of mine who was the same age and he said, well, don't you know we were called potato babies? because the staple of what we grew up on was potatoes. <laughs> so it was not a very balanced nutrition, and as also as a result of a almost non-existing healthcare system, we went through all the childhood diseases, every one of them. Uh, I think I missed a whooping cough. At a young age, Albrecht was often left to his own devices when trouble arose. I was 10 years old when I returned from summer camp, the last day of summer camp, we were playing barefoot soccer outside, and I went to retrieve a ball into the bushes, and I stepped into a piece of wood that, that they sharpened. And I had a pretty nice wound about you know, maybe an inch wide and an inch and a half, two inches deep in the sole of my foot. There was no doctor in the camp. They just bandaged it up, and, uh, and off we went the next day. I was hobbling home, and the bus took us to school. I walked home, and my mother saw that uh, bandage and uh, said, well, what's that? She took the bandage off, and she said, well, this doesn't look good. You need to go to the doctor. And so she rebandaged the foot, and off I went to the doctor. I knew the way. It was about at least a quarter mile, possibly even half a mile uh, up north in, in town and uh, go to the doctor's office. And then they called me in. The doctor 
It's an old man. He he was he, he was legend in town. He survived the Nazis. You know, he was the typical country doctor. He did everything. And a hard man, too. Right? You had to be hard in those days because a lot of the things that doctors uh, did caused pain. There was very little uh, anesthesia. So he, he looked at the wound and he said, hmm, this is, uh, this is not good. And then he told the nurse, sit on his leg. And then he pulled out something that looks like a pencil. It was so painful. You know, the sole of your foot is very sensitive. I don't know if I screamed. I might as well have screamed, uh, but I couldn't move. The, the nurse was sitting on my leg. And then he was done, and the pain left slowly. He rebandaged it, and then he told me to walk back home. So both my parent and the doctor, two adults who were supposed to take care of you, the little kid, the 10-year-old, pretty much deserted me, not, not just physically, but also emotionally. And that must have made a pretty uh, strong impact on me uh, subconsciously that I was going to be on my own for the rest of my life. I didn't really think it through. That's the way it was. I don't think you, as a child at that age, you start rationalizing and thinking, well, this is not right. Why are they not helping me? They're just not helping. Do you take this as a fact? I was brought up with tough love. You got to deal with things as a child that normally we protect our children from these days. We take care of them, sometimes uh, maybe to an extreme. But if you're in pain, too bad. We don't have medication, so you got to live through it. Albrecht's parents grew up in particularly anxious times. Poverty, uncertainty, and even despair were part of their very existence. My father was 18 when the war ended. He never had time to mature as an individual. To high school, when the war started, he started high school, and he didn't quite finish. He was inducted to the Volkssturm, which means the, the last-ditch effort, where they took the old people and the invalids and the very young and gave them rifles to make a last stand. And my mother was six years older. She actually had a high school diploma, very unusual for girls in those days. And she was the smarter of the two. But she couldn't show it. She couldn't, uh, she couldn't be obvious about it because the society was male-dominant. The entire marriage was ill-conceived, let's put it this way. Uh, she's six years older. She's most likely smarter. He had pneumonia, and he was in the hospital. Now, here's a 26-year-old woman who had lost her fiancé in the war, having a chance to capture a man. Again, there were not too many eligible men around. He was a good-looking guy. He was pretty smart. He was going to go places. She must have fallen in love with him, and she nursed him to health. She brought food to, to his hospital bed. She made sure that he came back a healed man. I can understand how this goes. I once was in a hospital for four weeks, and I fell in love with a nurse. <laughs> they take care of you, right? And so they got married in 1948. The other good thing about uh, both being teachers, teachers were, were really, really well treated by the communist government. They knew the value of teaching the next generation. Housing was provided where it was available. So in my, my first house was the top floor of a three-story school building. My mother took me while she was teaching, and I was not in school yet. She took me in the classroom. I was just sitting there because there was no babysitting available, right? 
And uh, when I entered first grade, I went, my first classroom was downstairs. So I, all I had to do was go downstairs. By the way, the, the bathrooms were downstairs across the street. There, there was running cold water in the, in the apartment, and that was it. Albrecht's father was a constant influence, always maintaining his presence at the school. And he was a rather stern man, rarely sharing anything emotional. He taught two classes that I took. One was voluntary. He was my first English teacher. It's an interesting coincidence, right? And the other one was uh, he taught biology. And I overheard him speak to a neighbor, and he said the following, you know, the only one I, who deserves an A in this class is my son. I can't give this, I can't give my son an A. That doesn't look right. His mother was the true head of the Dietrich household and the caretaker for the entire family. She was a strict disciplinarian. There is a whole lot more uh, interesting stuff to be said about my mother because she was emotional. She showed her emotions. She had a lot of suppressed emotions. And she was a bit of a contrarian. She, wasn't, she wouldn't quite go along with the party line. She never became a party member, even though I guarantee you they were all recruited. All the teachers were being recruited. And she politely declined. While the family had often struggled to make ends meet, they did find some success through the tough post-war period. The two teachers' salaries even allowed them to buy the first private car in the village. In the summer of 1961, the family took a rare vacation to the Baltic Sea, considered a luxury in those days. The water was ice cold, but Albrecht and his brother did not mind. They loved this rare escape from their tiny village. We would just go in there until our lips were blue and we... We were trembling with the cold, and then, you know, you hang out in the sun, and then you go in again, and, and, in the, and you got halfway decent food as well. So these were good experiences. On their way home, Albrecht's father decided to drive on to Berlin. The date was August the 13th, 1961. 12-year-old Albrecht had never been to a big city before. We were going to go to Berlin, and my mother said that we should go to West Berlin because the border was open, and apparently you could exchange East German marks for West German marks and buy stuff in, in the West. And I do believe she wanted me to buy, she was into leather pants, but she was always into everything practical. Ugly as hell, but practical. So leather pants or shorts, leather shorts, uh, the, the ones that you could buy in East Germany made a noise every time you took a step. <laughs> so they had to be broken in over a number of years, and by the time they, were, they, didn't, they didn't talk anymore, they were too small for you. <laughs> so she wanted to buy some leather pants for me. This was going to be interesting. I don't think I'd ever been to a big city. We get on the Autobahn, and Berlin is... Uh, even today has a ring around it, a Autobahn ring. And as we hit the ring, we were blocked. We couldn't go any further. There was a traffic jam. So what's going on? And eventually there were some soldiers that, that were walking up there and telling everybody, turn around. When you ask them, you know, why, what? They didn't tell you, just turn around. You can't get into Berlin today. And that was the day the wall went up. Had gone up the night before. August 13, 1961. Communist police and militia occupy the entire border around West Berlin. The communists built a wall along the Soviet sector, and in violation of existing agreements, split the city in two. Just like that. 
and they wouldn't let any traffic in and out of Berlin. And so we were disappointed as we were. We had no clue what was going on. Nobody knew about this other than the high-level folks in, uh, of the East German leadership, most likely the Russians. The CIA had no clue. West Germans had no clue. The Bundesnachrichtendienst, the West German uh, intelligence service, nobody knew, even though they had agents. It was a masterpiece of organization and construction that the East German government was able to perform. If they had done everything else with that excellence, we, we would have beat West Germany. <laughs> we had no clue. We had no clue. And there were no car radios in those days, so we drove home and turned on the radio, and there it was. It was a it was never-ending propaganda about the, the erection of the anti-fascist border wall, because that was, that was the propaganda, that we were protecting us from the neo-fascist invasion that might be coming. The walls were going up in Germany, signaling what was to come. Tensions between East and West were rising. The Cold War had arrived in full force. The so-called People's Police made every effort not to be photographed. Talking across the wall was prohibited. The party itself didn't, didn't appear to us children. I knew about the party because my father was in the party, and he would come home and talk about it. And we got a glimpse of the party because certain teachers that we had we knew were party members. Like most of his classmates, Albrecht was proud to join the Young Pioneers. Besides school itself, this national youth organization for children aged 6 to 13 was the primary vehicle of the party to create a solid foundation of communist ideology in East German children. The basic tenets of the Pioneers were laid out in Ten Commandments which the youngsters had to memorize and recite repeatedly. Upon entering uh, the Young Pioneers, we were presented with the Ten Commandments. These were the rules to live by. Interestingly, they were Ten Commandments. Number one, we young pioneers love the German Democratic Republic. Number two, we young pioneers love and respect our parents. Number three, we young pioneers love peace. Number nine, we young pioneers like sports and keep our bodies clean and healthy. And number 10, we young pioneers proudly wear our blue kerchief. Interestingly, uh, there's very few things that you can disagree with here, but number nine uh, smacks a little bit of the Nazi youth. Sports keep the body healthy. There's some, some of that Nazi youth has seeped into these principles. You know, being out in the open and discipline and all this, and this is very, very German. The swell of enthusiasm continued to surround Albrecht and his friends. They celebrated the growing successes of communism and the rise of the Soviet Union. The teacher came to class with a, with a radio. There was this beep, 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 and there was the, the Sputnik signal. We got the first satellite. We, the Soviet Union, sent it out. We beat the Americans. Look, and this is the future. Yay. I mean, we knew that the future was on our side. There were too many good signs. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. 
Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. Albrecht knew the heroes and the enemies. The enemy was the United States, big time. Not so much England or France, the United States. They were going to come and take us over. And I, I remember a caricature of General Eisenhower. And to us, Eisenhower was a, a curse word. <laughs> e. Eisenhower delivers a nationwide television radio speech on the Berlin situation. From his office in the White House, President Eisenhower gives this report to the American people and to the world. Soviet rulers should remember that free men have, before this, died for so-called scraps of paper, which represented duty and honor and freedom. We hated the Americans. We didn't know much about America at all, but we just knew that they were, they were just evil. They were against, you know, they were the oppressors, they were the capitalists, they were the, the ones that would continue capitalism and imperialism and continue to oppress the workers of the world. And as such, they were the enemy of our nascent worker and peasant state. End of story. He did listen to German-language radio stations, but only for the music. Most of what he knew of the West, he learned at school, from children's magazines, or at home from his father. We did not have relatives in the West. None. There was no exposure to uh, the wealth of Western culture. We lived in an area where you couldn't get West German television. So that was known as Tal der Ahnungslosen, the Valley of the Clueless. <laughs> uh, in those days, in order to get that signal, you had to have an antenna on the roof. And uh, for, for where we lived, you had to have a real big antenna, and it would be known that you were reaching out to the West. And that was no good. So I had no exposure to the West other than sh shortwave and very longwave radio, and, and that we listened to strictly for the music. The music was our window to the West, and the music was ten times better than what we had. When I heard the Beatles for the first time, it was, I want to I hold your hand. It was on Radio Vienna or Austria too. While Albrecht continued to blossom at school, life at home proved difficult and the cracks in the Dietrich family continued to deepen. Albrecht's father became more and more distant from the family. In the evenings, he withdrew into his study with a bottle of wine. To me, he's a non-entity. He had no influence over my growing up, other than figuring out how not to be. He was an emotional cripple. He just couldn't deal with the emotional aspects of raising children. It just wasn't there. And intellectually, he didn't have to teach me anything. Albrecht's parents divorced, and now, more than ever, he was looking for an escape. Though he started to realize he had a superior intellect, Albrecht had no idea what he wanted to do with his life. I didn't have a long-term vision. I didn't study. Was an A-minus student. And then when it came to making the grade to get in, into the best college, I started working, and I got all A's. So now the question came, what do you want to do? You know, I chemistry, and that was in the back of my mind. So eventually I said, 
nah, okay, I'll go with chemistry. It was sort of a default. I was not a passion at the time. The focus educating the bright people was science, science and engineering. So the ambition was to be, to be one of the best and become a tenured professor. Albrecht moved to Jena, Germany, to attend university, and he quickly became an elite student. Whether he was aware of it or not, the Communist Party was always an influential force during Albrecht's life. But now that he was in university, the party took notice of this rising star. He was recruited aggressively and became a party member at the end of his freshman year. Very quickly, he was promoted to prestigious leadership positions. His career path was shaping up. But on one quiet Saturday, there was a knock on the door of his dorm room that would change everything. It was a Saturday morning. That's the time when I studied. You know, I had a bunch of paper, uh, papers in front of me. And I get this knock on the door. Well, I'm waiting and the door doesn't open. So immediately, instinctively knew that was an outsider. I waited a little longer, and then I said, come on in. The door opens, and yes, there was an outsider, a stranger. Never seen a man in, in my life. He had a trench coat on, a short guy. had his right hand in a, in a cast. He just struck me as not very likable immediately. He had a weasel face, you know, with a tiny nose that stuck out. Small eyes, unlikable. I have very strong first encounter reactions, always had them, and this one was a negative. So, he introduces himself, he says, I'm coming from Carl Zeiss Jena, that was the optics company, factory, that was the number one company in the entire city. He said, you know, I'm from that company, and I'd like to have a chat with you about what? I say, well, what do you think you're going to do after you graduate? I knew he was a Stasi. He spoke German. He was a German. He had no accent. The Stasi was the German secret police. I had no reason to fear the Stasi. So, you know, why not, you know, make it even more interesting to propose whatever they were going to propose? After about 10 minutes, he, he changed his tune completely. He says, I, I really have to confess. I'm really not from Carl Zeiss Jena, I'm, I'm from the government. And so, uh, and, and I says, okay, that's interesting. And, and then he came right out. Can you vi envision yourself working for the government one of those days? And I didn't think about it. I didn't have to think about it. It was right there. I said, sure, but not as a chemist. He had the answer to the question he didn't ask. You know, I helped him out, right? We, we were communicating between the lines. He really wanted to know, could you like envision yourself being sort of in, in intelligence? And he didn't ask that question, government. I said, yes, but not as a chemist. Next time on The Agent. I'd like to introduce Herman. We are working with our Soviet comrades. One, two, three. I was with the KGB. I knew that. Soviet comrades, that's KGB. She was in the way. There were no feelings of guilt. I was really, really cold-blooded selfish. When he opened his mouth, there was strength coming out of that man. Now, he spoke only Russian. 
I had become a Soviet state secret. The Agent is a production of Imperative Entertainment in association with Windjoy and is created, written, produced, and edited by Jason Hoke. Narration by Alden Ehrenreich. Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Josh Klebe. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.